they have separated themselves unto God and they've given themselves over to him completely. And they are not going back to idol worship. But by the time Jesus arrives in the New Testament from this period, idolatry is not their problem, but legalism is. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So chapters four through six. Now last week, uh, we were in chapters one through three of the book of Ezra. Let me summarize what all that was about so that we can be on the same page. Ezra chapters one, two, three is right after the Israelites have been exiled out of the land. The temple was complete. Solomon's temple was completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The Israelites were kicked out of the land for 70 years. Um, they were under the thumb of the Babylonians, but the Babylonians have now been taken over by the kingdom of Persia, of the Medes and the Persians. And then in the first year of King Cyrus, he allows the Jews to head back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding their temple and rebuilding Jerusalem. And the first three chapters of Ezra is really covering that. They head back to Jerusalem they're under the leadership of two guys named Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel is the civic leader. He's the political leader of the group. And Joshua is the high priest. So he's the religious leader that is guiding this force back to rebuild the temple. Um, and that is essentially all that the first three chapters are about. There's a lot of interesting pieces in that. Uh, and unfortunately, we didn't get to record last week. So one of the interesting pieces is that King Cyrus is actually mentioned by name in the, by the prophet Isaiah, written a couple of hundred years before this event took place, long before Cyrus was even born. He was mentioned by name as the person who would decree the Israelites to be able to go back and build their temple. Um, and then it comes to fruition. Cyrus just happens to be the king to do that. But now we're in chapter four. They've been working on the temple. They finished the foundation and the altar. And that's where we pick up. They haven't finished building the frame or the building or any of the other temple instruments, just the altar and the foundation. And this is Ezra chapter four, verse one. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel 
and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So what you see is, as they've been working on this, there are some people who have been dwelling in the land or near the land while the people were exiled out to Babylon. And now these people have come back and start rebuilding the temple. And now there's, they're not so fond of the Jews. They don't say that. They hide it behind rhetoric. But they're not fans of the Jews and what they're doing. And they basically say, let us help you. We've been worshiping God as well. Now, it is likely that this group of people, that this is sort of the kickoff between the dislike between the, what the New Testament calls the Samaritans and the Jews. Because this is the group of people who have stayed in the land from the northern kingdom, who sort of mixed with the Assyrians and have mixed their worship of God with the pagan worship of the Assyrians, and the Jews don't like that because they were just they just got back to Jerusalem after being exiled for all of their pagan idolatry. They're not about to give in to that same idea again. And so they say no. Now chapter 3 says, But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So Zerubbabel and Joshua say to them, no thank you, in not so nice terms, and say, you, can't, you are not allowed to help us at all. We don't want you to be a part of this project in any way. They're just going to do what they've been commanded to do by King Cyrus. Verse 4, then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah, they troubled them in building. Now, we have no idea what, this, what sort of tactics they used to discourage the people from building. All we know is that they scared them. Whatever they were doing was working because they put a lot of intense pressure on the Jews who were trying to rebuild the temple. And hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, here's the next piece of this. So, for the rest of King Cyrus's reign, these people stopped building. They stopped working on the temple. This is about 16 years of just living in Jerusalem, not doing what they came to do. But the next part of, the, of chapter 4, for a long time, is confusing because you expect this story to be linear. It's not. And you can tell by the very beginning of verse 6, it says, In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Well, it's supposed to be Darius's reign that they're talking about. Ahasuerus is a completely different king. This is, he's also known as King Xerxes. This is the king that exists when Esther is on the scene and becomes queen. And so Ezra is taking us into the future, and he's basically saying the trouble that the Jews have experienced in the land doesn't end with his time, or with Zerubbabel's time, or Joshua's time. And he tells us that during Xerxes' reign, 
they wrote an accusation against the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, the story of Esther has all kinds of information about that. Uh, and we'll get there. So hold on. because That's just a few books away. In the days of Artaxerxes, which is the next king after Xerxes, so even further into the future, also Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commander in Shimshai, the scribe, who wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum, the commander to Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Dinaites, uh, the Afers, the Aphrasathites, the Tarpalites, the people of Persia and Erech and Babylon and Shushan and the Dehavites, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. This is a copy of that letter that they sent to him. So that's just a bunch of information about who's upset. But they write a letter to King Artaxerxes. Again, this is well into the future. This is really dealing with Nehemiah's time, which is the next book that we'll be getting into. Um, but Nehemiah is the one who helps rebuild the walls and the streets of Jerusalem under King Artaxerxes. So this is that letter. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth, let it be known to the king that the Jew who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to the kings and provinces, and that they have indicted sedition within the city in its former times for which cause this city was destroyed. So part of this letter that they're writing to King Artaxerxes well off into the future is that the Jews were particularly troublesome for the Persians and the Babylonians. And he's just saying to King Artaxerxes, double check the historical facts behind this and you may want to stop them from building their walls. Now the reason is because once a city has walls, it has a defense. And they're worried that if this city has a good defense with how troublesome they were, even as this small little place in Jerusalem, how how long they were able to defend themselves against Babylon and Persia. And we don't want to lose that tax money. So that's the complaint. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. So he's saying they'll be able to take back their land and take back their ownership of it if you let them finish. So the king responds. And Artaxerxes replies, replies, he says, to Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace, and so forth. The letter which you sent me, or which you sent to us, has been clearly read before me. 
And I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city, in former times, has revolted against kings, and rebellions and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem, who have ruled over all the region, beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed, now that you do not fail to do this, why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? So Artaxerxes says, yeah, get them to stop building. I don't want them to have a defense. Now, when the copy of Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Now we're back in the present on the next verse. So that's all future stuff, basically saying the Jews had trouble under King Xerxes, the next king, and his son Artaxerxes, there was even more complaint, and they stopped the Jews from being able to rebuild Jerusalem in that future time, during the time of Nehemiah. Now, back to the present in the time of Zerubbabel and Joshua. Thus the work of the house of God, which is, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. So now it's been 16 years without them building the temple, which is the entire reason they came back to Jerusalem. But they got scared, they got threatened, and they stopped doing their work, and they just lived their life and stopped doing it. Now here's something I didn't mention last week because I knew we would get to it this week. During the time of Zerubbabel and Joshua, when they came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, there were some pretty significant prophets who poked and prodded them along their way. Right in chapter 5, you see who they are. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So during this time of Zerubbabel and Joshua, when the Jews came back to rebuild the temple, after the 16 years of them being dormant and not doing anything, God raises up these two prophets who are contemporaries of each other, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, most of what this is referring to are things that Haggai said. But these two prophets were a big deal. Haggai was the one who really poked and prodded Joshua and Zerubbabel to get back to doing the work that they came to do. And Zechariah, in case you didn't know, is the minor prophet. So there's two sections of prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, which covers Lamentations, um, Daniel, those books, right? The larger books. And then the shorter books by the prophets, they're called the minor prophets. It's not that they were less important, but Zechariah is the minor prophet that is most often quoted in the New Testament um, because of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled within the Gospels. So these two guys are giving Zerubbabel and Joshua the business and telling them they need to get back in order. Now, Haggai in particular really tells them, this is what you came here to do. You have to finish the work. And he's 
he's just on fire for what God is telling him. It's a nice short book, two chapters, if you want to read and follow along with what's going on in this section. Um, verse, verse 2. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, uh, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, saying, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? All right. Now, this is a bit of a different attitude. It sounds really standoffish. It kind of sounds like the guys from chapter 4 who were giving the Jews trouble about rebuilding the temple. But what's really going on is they haven't been doing this work for 16 years. There's now new governors from Persia new people who have taken up ranks from Persia in this area, and they don't understand where the Jews got the permission to do this. And they're just making sure that they have all their T's crossed and I's dotted so that they don't get in trouble because the people they're responsible for are doing something, and they're not sure that they have the permission to do it. So they ask the question, who gave you permission to rebuild this temple? Then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease till the report go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai sent. The governor of this region beyond the river and Shethnar Bosnai and his companions and the Persians were in the region beyond the river to Darius the king. Then they sent a letter in which was written, To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the providence of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber and is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned, answered, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed, Solomon. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. So it's a little history lesson. Solomon built this wonderful temple. It stood for a long time. The Jews just didn't worship God very well over a long time. God got impatient with them and kicked them out and he used Nebuchadnezzar to do it, and he destroyed that temple. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named Sheshbazzar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these articles, go carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Sheshbazzar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. So the report that they're giving the king is the Jews told us that King Cyrus 16 years ago, said they could rebuild this temple. Um, and that is why there was a foundation there, but they haven't finished their work, and now they're starting again. 
But apparently King Cyrus gave the permission to this guy called Sheshbazzar to do that, and he laid the foundation, which is one of the reasons we think Sheshbazzar is Zerubbabel. That, that's the Babylonian name given to the Jewish man Zerubbabel. Just like how Daniel, when he was serving under King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar called him Belteshazzar, even though his Hebrew name was Daniel. So this is likely Zerubbabel that they're talking about. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure during this matter, or concerning this matter. So they're just asking, they're rebuilding this temple. They said, Cyrus, let them do it. Can you search the records and just make sure so that we don't get in trouble for letting them do this? So then, chapter 6, King Darius issued a decree and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon and at Akmitha in the palace, that is the province in, of Media. A scroll was found and in it a record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it for be firmly laid. Its height, 60 cubits, its width, 60 cubits, which is about 90 feet, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, uh, be brought to Babylon, be restored, taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, and your companion, the Persians, who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. So Darius's response is, Cyrus did say they could do this, so let them do it. So a whole lot of words to say that. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. So whatever taxes are collected from Jerusalem are to be used from the king's treasury to be given right back to the people to do their work. So they're still paying for it themselves, but they're not paying for it themselves and taxes. Their taxes are going directly to rebuilding the temple. Now, whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the kings and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. So this letter finally turned into an action movie uh, and got a little bit exciting. Darius says, if anyone gets in the way of them doing this, pull a beam out of their house, stick it in the ground and hang them on it impale them with it and hang them on it. Um, so he's pretty serious. And also, these people who were questioning the work that the Jews were doing have just been given their response. Do not get in the way because a degree has been issued 
let them do their work, and the king is paying for it. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. So they got their word, they're allowed to do it, and if they get in the way, death is at stake. So then Tatanai, governor of this region beyond the river, Shethar Bosnai, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet uh, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So this is like four years of work. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. So the, they built the temple, it's completed, and now they get to the work of worshiping God. They perform tons of sacrifices to appease God. They put people back in their positions of worship. The Levites are now back serving every day, and they're worshiping God, and they've gotten rid of the idolatry, and the temple is back. Verse 19, uh, the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. So what's the first celebration they have? Passover. Keep that in mind. That is something you might want to circle. As we've gone through this Bible study, you've seen over and over again, whenever the Israelites get back on track, what's the first thing they do? It's always Passover. It's always celebrate Passover. And Passover is so closely linked to Jesus, the Passover lamb. And so that's what they do. The temple's finished. They've got themselves back in order. And the first thing they celebrate, Passover. Recognizing life instead of death. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel, who had returned from the captivity, ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for they made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So they've gone back. They've got things under control. And this is similar to the point of where we ended last week, which is before the Jews were sent to the captivity in Babylon. The constant fight that God had with them was their willingness to bring culture, outside culture, into Judaism, into, into the temple, into Israel. They would worship pagan gods or bring in altars to pagan gods and bring in outside worship and pagan worship and idolatry from the outside into Israel. That is why they got exiled. Now, upon return, and they've rebuilt the temple, idolatry has pretty much just been wiped out. 
That's not a large-scale issue with the nation of Israel anymore. They have separated themselves unto God, and they've given themselves over to him completely. And they are not going back to idol worship. But by the time Jesus arrives in the New Testament from this period, idolatry is not their problem, but legalism is. They no longer deal with worshiping false gods or false idols, but they've become incredibly legalistic and have kept people out from worshiping God by all of their rules and restrictions that they put on people and by increasing religious activity and making it extra hard to get to God. And that's what the Pharisees were known for. Now, another point as we close up tonight's lesson is in the book of Haggai, at this point, the people are looking at the temple. And Haggai says to them, who here remembers what is old enough to have seen the former temple, the temple that Solomon built? And there's a few people in the crowd, and they're disappointed. He says, does this, does this look anything like that, pretty much? And everyone recognizes that this temple is way less beautiful, way less glorious than the temple that Solomon built. And then Haggai goes on to say, not to worry, because the temple that they just built will be more glorious and more will be done for God at this temple than the former temple. And so even though it doesn't look like much, more will be done with this temple. Now, from a physical standpoint, that was done by King Herod. King Herod in the New Testament era refurbished this temple and made it bigger and just more grand than Solomon's temple. It wasn't quite as ornate and as decorative, but it was much bigger in stature and more impressive to look at just from its sheer size. And it was still very ornate and beautiful. But the full fulfillment of that is Jesus. That's the temple that had the silver coins thrown back at it by Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And then threw the silver back at that temple, paying for the sacrifice that would be made. See, in the Levitical law, in the guilt offering, you would bring an offering to the temple of a ram. It's your ram. And with any other offering, you just bring it to the temple and they offer it on the altar. But with the ram, you also pay to the temple the value of the ram for that particular offering. And it's a guilt offering which covers both sin you're aware of and unaware of. And Jesus, his sacrifice was paid for with 30 pieces of silver that were given back to the temple and so Jesus also fulfills the guilt offering on our behalf. Sins we're aware of and aren't even aware that we've committed if we trust in him. And so even more glorious things were done with that temple that they built, even though its appeal to the eye wasn't as good. That also says something about Jesus. Because in Isaiah... Isaiah wrote that there was 
the appearance of the Messiah, that there would be nothing in him, appearance-wise, that would draw us to him. He didn't look like much. He did look like an average Jewish man in the first century. He wasn't bigger. He wasn't more buff. He wasn't more handsome. There wasn't something about him that would draw you from an external point. It was simply his spirit and what he was willing to do for us. And ultimately what he did for us was paid for at that temple and he was crucified just outside that temple, just a little bit north. And so you know also a sin offering has to get sacrificed outside of the temple before the blood is brought in because it's for sin. It can't be in a clean place. And so this temple that they built was used to create the ultimate sacrifice where the ultimate sacrifice was paid for on our behalf by Jesus. And so it's not always the external experience or appearance, but how useful it is that can make the difference. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this section of the book of Ezra and what this story represents. God, I, I think we can all relate right now to being exiled. We spent two years in exile, pretty much. The church did. Maybe not us in particular, but the church as a whole, particularly in America, was exiled for two years. And a small remnant came back. I think now it's time to rebuild. God, we have some momentum on our side. And there is real evil in society. And the church is the best weapon against it because it stand, it's truth and grace. I pray that we can bring that to the world now uh, because it's desperately needed. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.